Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour with me, Harriet Minter. This week, we've got an amazing discussion from three brilliant women on how the Irish laws around sexual harassment online have finally adapted to protect women and what we here in the UK can learn from them. Plus, I talk to addiction expert Holly Whitaker about our relationship with alcohol. But first up, I wanted to give you a little news about this podcast. So, as you know, Badass Women's Hour started four years ago with me and the brilliant Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. Both Matt and Emma left the show earlier this year to focus on their own careers. And when they left, I had grand plans for the podcast and how I was going to change it up a bit and all the different things we were going to do. And well, then COVID-19 hit. And let's be honest, we're all just trying to get through the year, right? So none of those things really happened. But as of next week, some changes are starting. The most important of which is that going forward, the show will go out on a Wednesday morning, London time. So Wednesday morning, London time. And if you're wondering why we aren't updating on a Monday, it's because, well, after four years, both me and my editor will quite want our Sundays back. So Wednesdays it is going forward. The show will still feature lots of brilliant badass women, but I also want it to feature you. Your views, ideas, thoughts and worries are what I constantly try to address on this show. But it's going to be even better if I get them direct from you. So if you've got something you want to say, there'll be lots of ways to get in touch. Plus, we're going to have a bit of a rebrand don't expect anything too clever. Branding has never been my strong suit, but things are going to look a little different. I'll let you know when we've got final ideas. There will be some changes, but most things will stay the same. The show will still bring you badass women doing amazing things. We'll still be talking about the big issues facing women today. And most importantly, we'll still challenge the status quo and look at how we can make the world better for everyone. In short, this is just a little heads up that in the coming weeks, things might look a little different. So do bear with me and do give me your feedback. Any ideas and views are always welcome. In the meantime, let's get on with this week's show. First up, how Ireland is making the internet safer for women. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. First up, this week we are celebrating the change in Irish law that makes it illegal to film or distribute a sex tape of anyone without their consent. I know, you would have thought that was illegal already, but no, turns out it wasn't. And it's been causing women across the country huge amounts of pain and distress. We'll be talking to one woman about her story and how she hopes this won't happen for anyone else ever again. But first, joining us now on the phone, we have Cleona Seidler, Executive Director for the Rape Crisis Network Ireland. Hi, Cleona. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. So tell us exactly what has changed in the law. 
So in, in many ways, what the, the, the new act, which was brought in, which was passed through the very last stages of Parliament here on the last day before Christmas, uh, it's the it's called the Harassment Time for Communications and Related Offences Act, quite a, quite a mouthful. But really what it's, what it's doing is it's updating the law to, to, if you like, come to terms with and to deal with the way that communications and how we communication, how, we, how information moves, has changed as we moved online, basically. So the old the old legislation and the old laws around harassment, this is the same all over in every jurisdiction. You know, they were based on how we talk to each other, if you like, in real life. What we needed to do was have a legislation that was fit for purpose for online communications. Can you give us an example of, say, the difference in how we would talk to each other in real life versus online? Yeah, so, so one of the key pieces here is the concept of harassment and we we tend to think uh, harassment traditionally and how we think of tra- harassment is something that is an ongoing behaviour. So an ongoing set of actions that are continually coming at you that, that harass you. Um, that in, in, in real life, that would, you know, you can imagine what that might look like. Online, and, and in fact, the law here requires, in terms of harassment, requires that the, the perpetrator is actually doing something like that. There's a pattern of behaviour that oh, you Oh, sorry, Kira, can you repeat that for me again? You just cut out at the exact point when you said it requires you oh, doing I'm, something. <laughs> just, just and, you know, the law here, you know, in terms of defining and mm-hmm. finding someone guilty of harassment, you'd have to be able to prove that there's a pattern of behaviour there. Okay. Whereas if you're online... What you can do is just swipe left or hit a button and you can do, so your action may be one simple action, but the harassment is continuous. Mm. So that's the difference. So uh, if you cannot, so the, the challenge that the law, the like, traditional law had, and this is broadly speaking, is that if someone has simply pushed one button and taken one action, you cannot now define that under the old law. So you needed to basically rewrite a law, or bring a new law, which recognised that the intention of that one action was was a continuous harassment of the person. This is really interesting because this then feeds into, I guess, what we're talking about distribution of sex tapes, for example, where yeah. with one click you can upload that onto the internet, and you've done one action and it took you two seconds, and that was that. But actually, that tape is then there in perpetuity, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the impact of that one action means that the harassment is going to be continuous and ongoing and possibly indefinitely so. And for women in Ireland, what do you think this means for them? Oh, I mean, this is, this is I mean, in a lot of ways, it's really reassuring. Mm. You know, there was a piece, there was a, you know, in some ways you could have said, well, the old law has, you know, there's a lot, there's, we understand this behaviour not to be okay. And we can kind of bend and be really creative with the existing law, but actually it's going to be a challenge, it's going to be a struggle and there's going to be loopholes here and there's going to be women who are not protected here. So what it is, is a reassurance that A, that's, you know, it's been really, there's been a reflection on exactly the experience of women right now in terms of what is happening in terms of their sexual objectification and in terms of images, in terms of how that is all moving online and being utilised online, and that there will be a response. Now, it's only in some ways for us we think of this, it, it's half the job done, this this act. There's another act coming on on the back of this. That is really kind of the second half of this. Um, what we think of in terms of this law is that this is defining what a crime is. 
So we have, we have, if you like, drawn all the lines around it. And um, the next piece, because as you know, we can pursue now the perpetrators, and we can we can pr- imprison the perpetrators for a maximum of up to seven years if they've distributed with intent to harm. Um, so it's, it, it can be. It, may be quite a severe penalty that, that you receive if you're a perpetrator. But for the victim of that, that's only half half the task because actually in terms of justice, what they need is for that image to be taken down from the internet. Yeah. What they need is that image to disappear. So the second part, if you like, that in terms of for us is is the online regulation, the media regulation bill that's coming up and that's, that's still a long way off being enacted. But really what you're looking at there is how do you make sure that these images can be removed or removed and are removed in a timely manner in the best and the easiest possible way for victims. Cleona, this is absolutely fascinating. Stay with us because I want to talk now to somebody who actually has lived experience of this and what it feels like to have a personal moment taken from you and put out there for anyone to see. Alexandra Ryan is a journalist who has had her own experience of having a sex tape distributed on the internet of her without her consent and just what that feels like. She's written about it and she is here to tell us all about it. Uh, Alexandra, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Um, tell us a little bit just about your experience first. Yeah, it was harrowing to say the least. And even what you said there, taking something, something being taken from you, I guess that's what it felt like, your most intimate moment being taken from you. And it's been incredibly difficult up until now when this law passed for me so this happened to me five years ago Um, I slept with someone that I'd known for years unbeknownst to me he filmed us while we were having sex I had no idea and a couple of weeks later I found out about it because a woman he had started dating again found the video and Mm. basically she harassed me for years over it um, she tweeted about it she told lots of people about it it got into all the social circles in my business in the industry everybody basically knew about it and there were so many times that I wanted to defend myself and speak up for myself and tell people how hurt I was and how distressing it was but because there was no laws in place all of my legal advisors were saying if I speak out if I tell the truth the reality is she could still upload the video and nothing would happen to her so I've literally felt completely trapped for the last five years completely unable to speak not being able to say anything not even being able to admit that it was real because I was terrified someone was going to share it again so I've literally been in silence for the last five years and for me writing the piece I really wanted to get across how traumatizing it is because I don't think men or people who use it to let's say harass or blackmail people I don't think they understand the lasting effect and I certainly never would have thought about it before this happened to me but you know I dealt with anxiety panic attacks depression I used to wake up every morning for the first year thinking today's the day the tape's going to come out there and I still to this day have never seen it I know people who have and I myself have still never seen it I've no idea what it looks like how I look and strangers that I've met before have told me they've heard about it so like I was people thought that I was consensually involved in this video which I wasn't Mm -hmm. that was the first part and for so many people to know about it it was honestly absolutely heartbreaking I mean the thing that strikes me when I heard about your story was it must be almost impossible to ever trust anyone ever again yeah I mean honestly since then not only because there's kind of two people involved in my story in terms of someone filmed me without consent and then somebody used it to try and ruin my life it's a man and a woman so 
for me with men, yes, absolutely no trust. I still get nervous now, um, especially in intimate moments. I'm always paranoid because I had no idea that I was being filmed that time. So I'm always checking now. And then I wrote in my piece as well, like I I own a showbiz website called goth.ie. So I'd be out at events a lot, red carpets for the first I mean literally for the last five years I've been so paranoid all the time like I haven't befriended new people like a lot of people would probably say I'm quite standoffish but I was so untrusting and I really felt that everybody knew about it as well and mm. I really kind of felt deserted at the beginning because it was such salacious gossip so many people I was close to I no longer am close to now and they never even told me they heard about it they just spread it around so it was such a mixture of things it was shame and embarrassment even though I wasn't actually involved it was feeling this feeling of hiding this horrible secret that wasn't even mine to hide because it was done to me and I think it's important that people understand that it's not just for example if a man gets a photo of his girlfriend sends it to the lads thinks it's fun it might be fun to you but you've absolutely no idea the detriment and shame and embarrassment that girl is going to feel honestly for the rest of her life like I feel quite free after writing that piece because now I can talk about it because this law has come into Ireland if anyone was stupid enough to upload it now they'll face criminal charges but I still don't know if this will ever truly leave me because the trauma of it has lasted so long already what was it like when you first went to report this? Did you assume, you know, I'm going to report this, the police will step in, this will be stopped? Yeah, it's complicated because at the time I looked into it straight away and I realised mm. very soon within the first couple of hours that nothing that had been done was a crime. The actual only mm. crime was the person who stole the video. So I knew mm. that was a crime. But in terms of distribution of the video, even the man who filmed me without my consent that actually wasn't illegal at the time either so it wasn't just the sharing of it and then the harassment that went online that was also not illegal so I was looking at it from all aspects being like there's nothing I can do now I'm sure I could have gone to the police and maybe they would have questioned them or there would have been a warning I could have filed a civil suit for the trauma and the upset but I was scared too and the man involved told me not to go to the police he was like if you go everyone's going to see this and you're going to be so embarrassed so there was a lot of control coercive control going on between both of them as well and I was so scared I just didn't want it to be real I wanted to bury my head in the sand so if I could go back in time maybe I would have tried to do something but the reality is until last week there is nothing I actually could have done and I just hope the people that have read the piece now maybe they're going through something similar or maybe they're about to that now if this happens that the first thing they do is go to the police because I think the Irish government and the legal system here we're going to have to make um, a case study out of the very first case I think it needs to blow up I think there needs to be criminal time done a fine like everything because the true effects of this honestly people don't know and for me, it was shared um, through WhatsApps and things like that. But I've heard stories since I shared my story of girls much younger than me, like 18, 19. And the videos are being shared on YouTube, on Pornhub. I mean, really, my story is obviously really difficult to read, but there's a lot worse that's going on. What would you say now to... What would you say, first of all, to the man who filmed you and the woman who tried to essentially harass you with it? What do you want them to know? I think it's all in the piece, to be honest. There's <laughs> nothing really else to say. I, I don't know if people in general who do these sorts of things, whether they film someone or whether they share it or whether they threaten to share it. I don't know. Well, do people actually understand what it does to a person? And so with the piece, what I wanted to do was just explain it. And there's so many people that have been through that sort of 
trauma and anxiety and panic and they haven't been able to put it down in words so I just wanted to explain what it was like living with that because I guess it's easy to forget you've done something like that it's five years later now but I wanted to explain that like this is still something I think about on a daily basis I don't think there's one time in the last five years one single day has passed where it hasn't affected me and even starting new relationships like I would start seeing someone and I'd be so paranoid they would know about it or maybe they were sent it so I'd have to tell them the whole story I had to tell my mom I had to tell my dad it was just this constant trauma that was there and I think the importance of this bill coming in and maybe there's people wondering why there's such severe penalties and I just want people to understand why because obviously you know when you physically harm someone there's always consequences but when you mentally harm someone it doesn't seem to be the same and this is the first step in helping people realize how serious it is and in this act as well it's not just about revenge porn it's about online harassment in general so trolling things like that so I'm just hoping it's going to change change people and deter them I hope so too. Alexandra, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Alexandra Ryan there talking about her experience of online harassment. Um, Kiana, what you just heard there, do you think now that this law has gone through, women are going to feel more empowered to actually report people who are doing this to them? I, I hope they do because the, I mean, I think Alexander has articulated it really well, both in the article and, and just now. Really what we're looking for is culture change here. Yeah. The, you know, a big part of it and, and, and with, with the law behind it, you know, and, and some really severe penalties in there. Um, because what we have done is we have, we will often talk about the, the internet as, and social media as, as something of the wild west, if you like. And, and it's not okay and it's not good enough. There are behaviours and practices that we that we do you know that we have to learn um, and we have to put down new rules around how we behave and and this is one of those really important areas the impact of doing something like this and and this isn't a joke it's not funny it's not something small it's not something trivial it's now a criminal offense that you could spend seven years in jail for that's really critically important that we just mm-hmm. take on board and um, the severity of the impact of the action and therefore that we need to change our behaviour and we need to be really mindful about not only our own behaviour but when that behaviour comes into us. Because of course one of the things is that it's not just one person's action, it's it's a threat of everyone else's action and everyone else's action that gets that um, image in some way, shape or form or has passed that image in some way, shape or form. So, so it really is about the whole of the whole of you know, that whole culture change. So, Clearly, what happens now if, say, for example, you found a video, or a woman found a video of herself had gone up on Pornhub without her consent? What should she do? So, we would say just get get in touch with um, either the police force or our rape crisis centre, and and see what happens next. Because one of the things that just to be to be careful around is that. In terms of if you have that image or if you found that image, it's just really important that the, if you like, the evidence um, and and how you pass that evidence on is done properly and appropriately. So it's really important to get advice and to talk to somebody. So maybe just even talk to the police and say, I need to ask you, I need to send you the link, I need to send you the image, or however way that works, um, that you just get that advice from the police force before you take an action on it. Um, but also the, se- the second part for us is that we really want that other piece of legislation, which is really important, which is whereby the the internet will have a responsibility and a liability around that as well, around uh, responding in a timely manner to you when you say to them, I found or for example, I haven't consented to it, I need you to remove it right now. 
Cleona, thank you so much. Cleona Sedler there, Executive Director for Rape Crisis Network Ireland. Joining us on the phone now is uh, hopefully Mandy Reid from the Women's Equality Party. We're just going to get her back uh, to talk about what this means here in the UK. Because in the UK, we've had laws around revenge porn for a while now. We know that it has that it is illegal to upload images of uh, anyone without their consent. And yet there are still women being harassed around this. Mandy, f- tell us, what is the, uh, what's the actual legislation saying here in the UK and does it go far enough? No, the, the legislation here in the UK falls short and it falls short for a number of reasons. Mm. One of the reasons relates very directly to the points already made by Alexandra um, and Cleona. And can I just say thank you, Alexandra, for sharing your testimony. It's so important and so brave that you've done that. And thank you, Cleona, for all your work and activism um, in this space. But here in the UK, we are obviously now behind Ireland. Our laws fall short of what their laws cover. And what we in the Women's Equality Party want to see happen is that all sharing of sexual images without consent, which could cause distress, should be criminalised, as well as the threat to distribute such images. Mm. And the reason why that's so important has already been set out very, very clearly. What happens when um, someone experiences this kind of um, crime? It's a form of psychological and emotional terrorism. And I, I don't say that lightly. The effects are far-reaching, they are profound, they can undermine a person's quality of life, their dignity and well-being in ways that are very difficult to measure. Can you put a price on that? I bet Alexandra cannot put a price on what she's experienced. So I don't understand why here in the UK we would want to do anything less than what's already been um, uh, put through in Ireland. And another point that's really important to make here is that this isn't some niche crime, Mm-hmm. This is a very prevalent crime. In the UK um, last year, it was reported midway through the year that um, the UK's revenge porn hotline was heading for its busiest year on record. It was, yeah. it was citing a 60% increase in, in reports. Now, you'd think in a lockdown situation yeah. that um, it would slow down or the trend would reverse. But no, it is actually on the incline. So we've got a problem here that is um, not you know, static and on a plateau, it is escalating and people's lives are being ruined. And so there's no excuse for not taking serious action that also tackles um, the distributors. For example, you know, Pornhub and the like, who are infamous for their misdemeanors in this area. Absolutely, because that's the question I want to ask, because Cleona touched on it there, which is, you know, that actually sort of part two of the Irish legislation is to go after not just the people that are uh, uploading the content, but also the people that are hosting it. So, mm. as you said, Pornhub or any of the other sites. What do we need them to do? Because this is the thing that I have to say, I as a woman would be terrified about, which is, yes, you know, if something about me got uploaded somewhere that I didn't want to see it, I might be able to go after the person who did it. But that doesn't get rid of it. It's still there. And. Um- Look, I don't want to cause alarm, but it's really important we treat this with the seriousness it deserves. Pornhub, I don't know if you're aware, is the 10th most trafficked site in the world, right? So every year it'll have about in excess of 40 billion visits to it. 
So that tells you the kind of potential audience for um, these, uh, you know, revenge porn um, products mm-hmm. that, that, that get produced. And, and clearly made the point that some people think they're doing this as a little bit of a joke or whatever, or to get back at somebody because they've got a grudge against them. When you consider the, 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 the platform that an organization like Pornhub is responsible for, for me, it corresponds that they should have to take responsibility for that. They should be subject to criminal investigations if they host content of this of this type, refuse to remove it, or refuse to respond when it gets uploaded after a request to remove it. Um, these are very, very wealthy organizations that have huge um, revenue in the in the billions, you know, every single year. And so there's no excuse at all for, um, you know, the, the, the regulators here in the UK, for the, the criminal justice system here in the UK, being able to take them to task as well. This is women and girls' lives we're talking about. And I know men are affected too, but it's, it's primarily a gendered crime. We know that. So actually, I wanted to ask you about this because I know people will say, well, hang on, what about, you know, in the case of Alexandra, for example, it was a woman who was threatening to upload it. There must yep. be women out there uploading uh, revenge porn of men. Does this law apply to men as well? Oh, it should do. Anybody mm-hmm. who's the victim of this kind of appalling, as I say, mm-hmm. psychological and emotional terrorism deserves to have the law behind them. I mean, clearly, yes, it was a, a woman who was leading the charge in terms of harassing Alexandra, but it was a man who took that video you know, yeah. of her without her consent. So you've got this kind of like, um, you know, you've got, you've got joint villains there. But we do know that women and girls are primarily the ones on the receiving end of this. And uh, the last um, a survey last year showed that one in seven young women report that they've received revenge porn threats. Um, one in 14 adults, which equates to 4.4 million people in wow. the UK, two thirds of which are women. So the third are men, and that's a problem, and, and, and they yeah. need this law to serve them too. But let's, you know, I'm the leader of the Women's Equality Party. It's my <laughs> job to point out it, when and how things like this are gendered, and also to point out that that's sometimes the reason why they don't get taken as seriously as they should. This is an interesting one that, um, that I was wondering about, which is the website OnlyFans, where people can upload content of themselves and other people can yeah. pay to see it. But those images, what happens if they are then distributed? What happens if we are uploading our own images and somebody takes them and runs with them? Do we have any legal redress then? Well, I, the law that currently stands, I don't think is equipped to deal with that, I'm afraid. And, and so much of the laws in this space are struggling to keep with um, yeah. the evolution of technology and social media, the, the online harms bill that's going through Parliament at the moment. Um, you know, it's having a good go, but the pace at which change and legislation traverses through government does, you know, by the time it's all sorted and done and dusted and rubber stamped, the world's probably moved on because, you know, yeah. a couple of years ago, um, OnlyFans wasn't a thing. It's a relatively new um platform that's gained in prominence only recently. And so what we need, and the Women's Equality Party wants to see our laws being nimble and responsive to the ways in which they, um, uh, you know, don't properly address the harms women are on the receiving end of, but also able to react to how quickly those harms evolve. Because, you know, whole generations of girls are going up, growing up in, in a world where social media is such an integral part of their lives. Um, and, and we're letting them down if our laws 
don't tackle issues like this um, and aren't responsive enough when issues like this materialize. How long did Alexandra, who was just on the call, have to have to endure Five years. The, the worst of it? Five years. And the laws only come into play now. I'm glad it's come into play. Let's celebrate and appreciate that. But um, a lot of damage has already been done. And I don't want to see that damage inflicted on the next generation of girls who, who need us to stick up for them. Yeah. Amanda, I think there's something really important in what you said, actually, which is that this this world we live in, it moves so fast, the technology moves so fast, that actually kind of relying on legislation is never going to be enough. What we need right now is to make it really clear to the people who are creating that technology that if they don't factor this stuff in at the beginning, at the creation process, if they don't think about the what if then further down the line, it's going to have a financial, maybe more penalty for them. And that Absolutely. actually, if we can get them to think about it at the start, and we can, I'm, this probably feeds into a kind of women in tech line, right, which is if we had more women building the technology to begin with, we might start to think about what's going to be the impact of some of this longer term, and actually get them to put those, put that thought in at the beginning so that we're not chasing our tail around it. No, 100%. I mean, we need a multi-pronged holistic approach to this. Mm. Laws being in place, as, as, as Cleona mentioned, help because they send the signal that this isn't just fun and games. This isn't just something you do um, to, to, I don't know, have a pop at a friend of yours or an ex-partner at yours. Mm. This is something that carries a criminal pen- penalty and you're going to be in, in deep trouble if you, if you violate the law. So the law is important, but regulation of the massive corporations that are playing an increasing role in our lives is a huge blind spot when it comes to online abuse, when it comes to all of the things that fall under the category of um, revenge porn or different ways our data um, can be compromised and exploited to to, to damage um, our reputation or our well-being. Mandy, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you as ever. Mandy Reid, their leader of the Women's Equality Party. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Some amazing stories there and some important learnings for us in the UK about how our laws can go further to protect women from online harassment. 
My final guest for today is Holly Whitaker, author of a new book, Quit Like a Woman. Holly's book charts her journey with breaking up with alcohol and suggests ways in which we can all challenge our relationship with any toxic substance. Booze, social media, unreliable romantic partners, whatever it is, she has the answer to how you can have a better relationship. Here she is. Hi, Holly. Hi. Wow, that was a great intro. Oh. Extremely relatable. Well, you are already my favorite guest of the night. Thank you. Ah, <laughs> no, you did so good. I was like, yes, all of those things. It's, so yeah. I have actually followed you on social media for quite a while now, and I love okay. the work you do around alcohol, and I find it incredibly inspiring and interesting. But for people who don't know your journey as as I do, Tell us, um, tell us where you got to with alcohol and why you decided to change your relationship with it. Yeah, I mean, just like what you were saying at the beginning of this, I think that relatability and having those moments that, that mm-hmm. allow us to like look at something are so important. And for me, I, I have a very basic story with drinking. I started drinking when I was in my teens. But I write about this in the book. There was this very specific moment where I was sitting in my living room with one of my friends who was drinking whiskey to deal with a breakup. And she said she was going through an alcoholic phase. And I had never heard somebody voice to it that we might go through phases of extremely problematic drinking. And I was relieved by her saying it. And then so were all of my friends. (laughs) And I think that that was just one of these moments where I was like, well, either all of us are extremely sick or none of us are sick. And so... For me, I had an extremely um, destructive relationship with alcohol, and it ended uh, when I was, I would say, on the severe spectrum of alcohol use disorder. But mm. I think the the thing for me that I really try and convey was that there wasn't this lightning moment. There were years of, oh, well, I have this under control, or, oh, this is, like you said at the beginning, something that's controlling me. Yeah, And that's what's hard about it. And I think what's interesting for me about your story is that we tend to have um, quite a simplistic view about alcohol, right? So we sort of say either we are completely fine with alcohol or an alcoholic and there's nowhere and there's no thing in the middle. Yeah. And what you've actually done is challenge that view. Can you tell us about it? Well, you're exactly right. We have this idea that there's normal people that can make alcohol work and then there's people mm-hmm. that can't make alcohol work and they're alcoholics. And that ends up working against everybody because there's no specific diagnosis for for alcoholism. And also, it's not something that you just hit and then you have. It's something that over years grows. And by the time we're even encouraged to question whether our drinking is normal or whether it's abnormal and and alcoholic, we're usually pretty sick. (laughs) And so we spend so much time trying to pull apart whether we're we're alcoholics versus Mm -hmm. just asking ourselves, How's alcohol showing up in my life? Does it make me feel bad? Um, do I like what it does? And that's an important piece of, of what I think I try and drive us to. I think what we're driving to as a whole. Mm, I think that's such an interesting question. You know, how does alcohol show up in my life? Because when we ask that, it's a completely different question to, um, you know, do I feel like I'm in control of my drinking or should I drink less? Which is very kind of number specific. It's actually more about the feeling and the scenarios and what is going on behind the alcohol. Yes. You call your book um, it Quit Like a Woman. Why that title? 
Because I think women drink for different reasons. Mm -hmm. I think we drink because we're expected to be everything to everyone. And we're mm -hmm. supposed to have careers and have hobbies and be mothers and be daughters and be partners and be caretakers and look a certain way and eat certain food. I think there's so much that we're supposed to be. And then at the same time, that becomes impossible. And then we're sold alcohol as this way to manage it all. And so we're collecting all of this, like this, this, like, um, we're collecting all these things that we are are supposed to be coming at the same time. We're trying to manage it with a, a toxic, addictive substance. And we're told we're, we're really socialized through social media now mm -hmm. um, into using alcohol to do all those things, to mother, to de-stress. It's sold to us as a wellness toxin. There's yoga classes that involve mm -hmm. wine. It's how we come together. We have book clubs, right? I mean, yeah. so I'm speaking specifically to the experience of women and why we drink um, and then also how we end up marketing it to each other. I mean, as you were talking, I had the absolute vision of the kind of um, what we'd call the mummy blogger uh, mm -hmm. meme, which is, you know, a really harassed mum knocking back a bottle of wine at 6 p.m. on the dot. Yes. And that's just like, that's just marketed as, oh, that's totally normal. If you're not doing that as a mum, what is something wrong with you? Yes, yes. <laughs> My sister did not, I think, quite understand what my work was until she became a mother with a kid in preschool. And she was like, oh, I get it now because it is so normalized, especially in that demographic. Yeah. And so how do we um, how do we market alcohol to women differently than we do to men? What are some of the things we should be looking out for? Well, I think it's mostly that women are marketing it to women, that mm. we are essentially constantly holding it up as a reward. Or as our, you know, there's like that movie, Bad Bad Moms, where they yeah. break out of all of their hellish, you know, womanly duties and they're rewarded with getting drunk and getting sick. And so I think that it's really about being mindful. We would go not like we would really lose our minds if we started like saying after a day of homeschooling, I'm lighting up a cigarette in my house or I'm snorting a line of cocaine or whatever it is. Like we really have a lot of um, conditioning around alcohol where we we think it's a reward and we think it's a treat and then we sell that to each other. And so it's being mindful of the messages that we're participating in. And that really plays actually into what you were saying um, earlier, which is, you know, as women, we're expected to be everything. We're expected to mm -hmm. be brilliant professionals, amazing mothers, great wives and girlfriends, you know, fascinating individuals. And just the kind of relief of all that expectation is yeah. here's a glass of wine to wind down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> how do we go about breaking that cycle? I think awareness. I think conversations mm -hmm. like this, we weren't having conversations like this a decade ago. It's yeah. pretty radical. I mean, it feels like there is a, a general society movement at the moment around kind of drinking less so I'm thinking of uh, something that's sort of big here in the UK I don't know if it's in the US which is one year no beer which yeah. is like a challenge to people to like just put down the booze you stop now and see how far you get in a year yeah what do you think about those type of things I think they're incredible doorways into awareness around drinking. I also think, on the other hand, recovery is hard. We don't yeah. drink this way for no reason. It's not just alcohol. There are a lot of reasons that we use substances and behaviors mm. to distract ourselves. And so I think that these are incredibly important gateways. I also think we shouldn't kid ourselves that actually never drinking again or removing a substance 
is just an easy thing because that can get lost in the message. It's a lot of work and it's important work. I mean, that's a sort of interesting thing that I found really thought provoking about your book, which is that actually there's a kind of um, a need to be compassionate to ourselves in what we do and how we do it when we are rethinking our relationship to alcohol. Yes, yes. We don't get very far when we're beating ourselves up for our best efforts. Compassion is so important. So what does that look like in terms of how we then go about changing our relationship to alcohol if we are if we're to come from it come at it from a place of compassion how you know that sort of it feels like that kind of then goes against the you must not ever pick up a glass of wine ever again. <laughs> yeah and I think it's really one of the things that I think we need to get over is this idea that you just make a decision to quit drinking and then that mm. should just be it yeah that's really not how I, I know a lot of sober people um I don't know anybody that had that experience And so I think when we're talking about self-compassion, it is, there's two pieces to it. I think one is just committing to tell ourselves the truth, committing to, 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 to continue to be honest with ourselves, but to be so gentle with our process and to be curious and to allow it to unfold. You don't make a decision to do something like a dry January, um, out of ignorance. You're making it because something has become aware to you. So we have to take that sense of self-trust that we're leading ourselves in the right direction and be so kind to ourselves as we go through a very complicated process. That feels so um, so important to me, what you've just said there, which is that we don't pick these, I mean, dry January, but we don't pick these challenges or ideas or life changes out of the blue. We don't pick them because our best mate's doing them no. or because no. uh, Facebook has shown us enough ads for them. We pick them because, well, I mean, maybe sometimes, but like, yeah, we pick them because they're speaking to something in us and we need to listen to what they're saying. Yeah. Right. And when we listen to it, I mean, we're going to listen to other messages that our, our own intelligent self is, is giving us. Yeah. So how do we go about putting some of this into reality? Because you know, I've certainly been through periods in my life where I've said, that's it, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not drinking, if not, not forever, at least not for a while, I'm going to take a bit of a break. And then the next week, uh, your girlfriend's like, hang on, we're all going out for a big night out, come out with us. Or your boss has suddenly decided that we've all got to go out for these particular drinks on this night. How do we bring our, our new non-drinking selves into yeah. a world that is obsessed with alcohol? Well, I think one of the things is looking at this, we can't look at this like a diet. We can't look at it like we're restricting or depriving ourselves. We're making a choice to bring clarity, to bring alignment. We're really opening ourselves up to something bigger. We're removing, it's just like when you quit smoking, you know, you might miss these little huddles outside if you connect over it, but you're not, you know, you're healthier. You have more energy, you have more life, you have more space. We really have to look at if we're moving alcohol out of our lives for a month or forever, what we're doing is creating space. So you you can't look at it like deprivation, like I don't get to do this. You really have to focus on what you will get to do and what it brings to your life as a start. And do you think we need to bring other people on the ride with us or can we do it no. by ourselves? <laughs> no, no, it's such a personal journey. I think it's great to have, you know, mates that are going through it with you and doing stuff that, you know, like you, you can connect over, but I didn't get so, I got sober in community, but, uh, I, 
it really was a journey of, of going in. And I think that that's, it's great to have support systems and they're important, but also you, you do it for yourself, not depending on what your friends are doing. What have you learned about yourself since becoming sober? I think a better question would be, what have I not learned about myself? <laughs> what have you not learned about yourself? I don't know. There's very <laughs> few things. It's been, it, it, it's extraordinary. I became a writer. I left my career. Um, I got over an eating disorder. I, I learned I was limitless in so many ways. I found my creativity. I found my connection. I can have hard conversations. I can draw boundaries. I yeah. could go on and on. How do we... Um... How do we process that learning of ourselves with how other people feel about us? Because one of the things that I definitely um, have discovered when, you know, you do a piece of self-development or work on yourself and you grow in some way is that sometimes the hardest thing is that you feel like you've grown and yet the people around you still want you to be the person you were before or still assume yeah. that you are the person you were before. How do we talk to other people about that change in us? I think the thing is we don't really talk to other people about it. We're not doing it for anyone else. And I think about one specific example. When I got sober, I then decided I really didn't want to engage in gossip anymore. And I remember those first few times of not, you know, talking about celebrities for fun or other people <laughs> for fun and how much the people I was around me were made uncomfortable by my resistance to not partake in that behavior. Yeah. Well, that was a really big learning lesson for me because I was like, I'm going to do actually what's in alignment with myself. And that yeah. has carried me through so many difficult conversations. Like if we're talking about racism or sexism or any, like it allows us to be in our conviction without worrying about other people. And so I have worked really hard to not explain myself or, or have myself make sense to everyone. And I think that as, as women, oftentimes we're socialized to explain ourselves. And I've, I've learned how to not through this experience. I mean, I think that in itself is actually a really, almost a brave thing to be able to do, right? Because we, as humans, we do seem to love a label. We love putting yeah. ourselves in a group and saying, I am this, or yeah. I am part of this, or this is my, this is my group. This is my community it must be a very, um, is it a brave thing to stand there and say, actually, this is just who I am and I don't really have to explain it? It's so brave and it's so hard. It really is, but it just allows you to stop living for other people. And then I think the most important thing is it allows you to find your real people. I have relationships with people where they don't demand that I explain everything to them. And that, that I, it's almost been a, it's very different type of relationship that I build now with people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really all I can say. It's, it's far truer relationship. Yeah. And I feel I'm loved, you know, for different reasons than I, I was before. If somebody is trying to quit alcohol at the moment and they're finding it difficult, what would you say can help them? Well, I think the most important thing to understand is that it is difficult. It is, there's a lot of meat, you know, dry January was not a big thing a few yeah. years ago. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, UK for that. I mean, that's okay. just, it's, it's gotten so big. Um, but a lot of times if we're talking about sober curiosity or dry January, we can almost undermine the actual difficult 
process it is to remove um, not just a chemical substance, but really a coping mechanism. And I think what I would say to anybody is that it, it is a difficult thing. And as all important things and all, all things worth doing are, and like anything else, it requires persistence. There is no one right way. There's just a lot of things that you keep on trying. And I think, um, you know, you said there it's sort of sometimes alcohol is a coping mechanism and we just, when we sort of can acknowledge that, perhaps we can start to find other ways to cope. But it really reminded me of, um, I think, something that you actually posted on your social media, which is a quote from Andrew Solomon, which sometimes we end up grateful for the experiences that we mm-hmm. would have done anything to avoid. Yes, yes. And what does that tell us really about our need for coping mechanisms? That we're not really good with uh, mm. the with the ungrounded world that we live in, the constantly yeah. changing world that we live in, and we look for anything to help us manage that. You know, the places in us that terrify us, or situations that terrify us. And I think this year, you know, I was extremely fortunate. You know, I didn't I didn't get sick. I didn't have any family members get sick. I kept my job. You know, it's not yeah. the same for everybody, but mm-hmm. I had a hard year. You know, it was it was a difficult thing to go through. And at the same time, I feel like what I have been through this past year, and there are many things, not just COVID related, um, mm-hmm. they've made me stronger. And I would have never asked for any of what I had to specifically deal with this year. And I think mm-hmm. the same goes for addiction. Oftentimes we go through things and we cannot see that the gifts that they 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 bring with them. Um, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying COVID is a gift, but I am saying that we can find treasure in some of the hardest experiences we go through. Um, I think that's such an important life lesson. If there is one thing that you would want people to know about your book and mm. to take from it, what would what would be the one thing you would want them to want them to know? That self-trust that uh, is such a thing that lacks within within women specifically and, and then other populations that have been oppressed and, and really pushed out from being able to rely on their own judgment, their own voice. And I think at the end of the day, my book is about really getting clear with yourself and listening to yourself and owning, you know, your wants and desires. And that is what this is about, which is returning to that intelligence that we have within us that is, you know, sometimes whispering and sometimes screaming at us. Holly, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, because I absolutely, I like I said, I loved your uh, sense of self-compassion and seeing your journey over the years. Can I ask? Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> oh, oh, it has been, which is why I've enjoyed it so much. It's great. Uh, I have learned a lot from you. So thank you. Um, thank you. What is next for you now? Where do you go from here? Me personally in my mm. career or my yeah. personal life? Oh, okay. I mean, you're going to tell us both. I have but. one. Um, I, I love writing. And I mm. think that, you know, this book is babe, it's just, it's still a baby. It's about a year, it's about a year old. Um, and it's, it's, it still has a life in it. But I, for me, I just absolutely love um, writing and using words and sharing stories and, mm. I think for me, it's probably, you know, I'm never going to leave the addiction space because I I think it's a space that people move through and don't often stay. 
And so it is my life's work to stay in the space of, of people struggling with addiction. Um, but I see a lot of writing and, you know, and, and doing a lot of other wonderful things. I don't know. Well, thank you for all the work you do and for talking to us today about How to Quit Like a Woman. It is a great book. It's filled with compassion and generosity. And if you liked listening to Holly talk about her experiences here, you will absolutely love the book. It is it is a very honest and practical guide to how to change your relationship with alcohol, but also... Um, not just, I think not just alcohol, actually anything where you feel like perhaps I've got a coping mechanism that is not working as well for me as I thought it could be. And uh, when we look at Christmas, I think the Christmas and festive period is a really easy place for us to spot the coping mechanisms that ne don't necessarily work. Did you find yourself eating a bit too much this Christmas? Did you find yourself arguing with your family when you didn't really need to? Or perhaps you found yourself retreating to exercise when your body was exhausted and you just wanted to rest. Whatever it was, those moments where we push beyond what Hollywood there call our kind of instinctive knowledge, those are our coping mechanisms. And sometimes they're not as useful as we think they are. So perhaps in 2021, we can look at some of those coping mechanisms and think about how we change them. I have had, uh, I have an ongoing coping mechanism, which is when in doubt, sit down with a really good Netflix series and a box of chocolates and zone out for a couple of hours and just enjoy yourself. And that is lovely if you do it for a couple of hours. If, however, as you do, I did the other day and uh, get through the entire of Bridgerton in less than a day, you've maybe lost a bit of time. So one of my New Year's resolutions is to be a little bit more mindful with my screen time, both social media and the delight that is Netflix. Uh, but as Ali says, from a place of compassion and kindness. So sometimes it's not a straight, recovery is not a straight line. We don't go from, and I think this is when New Year's resolutions get it so wrong, right? We don't go from making a decision and then executing, and then go to executing it perfectly. That's that's not how it works. We make a decision to try something, we try it, we get it wrong, we try something else, we probably get that wrong too, and we try something else, we make a little step forward, then we do something else, it doesn't quite work, and so we go back again, and we learn and we develop and we grow as we go. And those are the resolutions that stick, the ones where we are kind and compassionate to ourselves, and we work through the problems. So my resolution that stuck from last year was that this year I decided rather than going on any crazy exercise fix, I would just set myself the target, which was I had to exercise three times a week. And it didn't matter what I was doing. It didn't matter really how long I did it for. I just had to move from my sofa and move my body in a way that felt good at that time and place three times a week. And the result was I actually did way more exercise because I didn't put restrictions on it. I didn't tell myself it had to be perfect. I didn't tell myself that I had to run a marathon at the end of it. I made it small and simple. So if you are looking for New Year's resolutions this year, if you just want to do a little bit more, change some habits, uh, perhaps end 2021 a little bit healthier than 2020, although quite frankly, if you ended 2020 with even the slightest bit of health, well done. You know, this has not been a good year for any of our health. Um, Think about starting small and gently and having compassion for yourself. Uh, Holly's book, Quit Like a Woman, great if you want to think about how you change your behaviours and change the way you manage situations. But all of this, uh, all of this only comes when we are kind to ourselves and we say 2021 is a year in which I am going to take things gently. Fingers crossed we can. One, two, three, four! So this is the final Badass Women's Hour in the format. 
Thank you for staying with me for all of these years, but particularly the past nine months when things have been so up in the air. I'll be back next week, but on Wednesday, remember, with some more brilliant badass women. In the meantime, do go check out our Facebook and Instagram pages for updates and ways you can get involved in the show. I can't wait to see you on the other side. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 